Are you listening to CBJRadio.com yet? The 2021 International Singer-Songwriters Association Radio Station of the Year is a free internet radio station. Brand new shows every day. Shows range from hip-hop shows to rock shows to punk rock shows to independent artist shows to a Friday night request show. And don't miss Retro Saturday Nights. Make CBJRadio.com the only internet radio station you listen to. All my friends, all my friends, all my friends with Justin Plaskarud. All my friends, all my friends, all my friends with Justin Flaskerud. Hello, friends. How are you doing? Are you a big social media user, consumer? Can social media make or break your day? Do you actually fact check the stuff you read and or post on social media? I think I used to be big into social media more back in the day, but now I use it to promote my radio station and this podcast. I look back at the memories on Facebook and I'm like, why did I post that? Nobody really cares about my political or social commentary, nor should they. I miss the days of Facebook when it was sharing pictures and reconnecting with friends and family. Nowadays, you have to navigate through ads and misinformation by posts by people that really have no idea what they are posting, but they like the headlines. My opinion is social media has changed us as a society because everyone thinks their ideas and their posts are the most important thing so they don't listen to other people on social media or listen to them face to face. And then they get angry when people don't agree with them because their posts got a few likes. As Dave Chappelle said, Twitter is not a real place. Now today's guest is Austin Earlywine. As you will find out in this episode, Austin and I are huge pro wrestling fans and we do talk about it, but not as much as I thought we would. I learned so much about Austin in this episode and I've known him for nearly 20 years now. Let's get to the interview. Uh, born and raised in Lusk, Wyoming. Um, where you're, are, are your parents native Luskians, whatever you call them? <laughs> yeah. So, so my mom and dad split up when I was like three and oh, uh, I uh, both are still in Lusk. And so I get back there pretty frequently. There do they, you have like grandparents that live in Lusk and everything or uh, they've passed away, but yeah, yeah. my grandparents were, were in Lusk. Uh, and so, oh aunts uh, i've got a couple of aunts that were in lost cousins that were in lost wow uh, otherwise they're uh i've got uh asa is and you know my kid brother he's in laramie right now still yeah in, yeah uh, uh, i've got another cousin in casper gotcha so like you are like true wyoming roots like a couple yeah. generations deep that's usually somehow you know grandma or grandpa meet somewhere else and they get to wyoming um but yeah they were already there interestingly my grandmother was full-blooded japanese she met oh, my okay. grandfather 
while uh, wow, I'm getting people suddenly, yeah, get involved <laughs> in a conversation and suddenly people want to message me. But oh, uh, my grandfather met her when he was stationed in Hokkaido during Korea. So okay. I'm a Japanese, even though I look like a Wyoming Irishman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I knew this one guy. He was like three quarters Native American, but he looked like the whitest white kid, like Opie Taylor. Like <laughs> it, it was interesting and, and such. Um, so you have a little younger brother and that's your yep. only sibling? Yep. Yeah. And what's the age difference there? Ace is seven years younger than me, I want to say. Seven years. So was he like the quintessential little brother? Everything you did, he was tagging along. Well, it was difficult because of the fact that uh, he he lived with my dad and stepmom. And okay. I had a fair amount of my time with my mom. So, uh, you know, we're still in touch and, you know, we're close and everything. Yeah. But we didn't spend a lot of time together. And the age difference, that meant that he wasn't even in middle school when I was in high school. So yeah. he was still doing the elementary thing while I was getting ready to graduate, but he was kind of into my guitar playing and stuff like that. So gotcha. he was always down to like, I guess there was one time when dad came in from running the mail route and Asa was sitting on the back steps by my room there and I was jamming out to something and he just goes to dad. I'm just listening. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I understand that def my parents divorced or separated. And I was like six and then um, they eventually both remarried to my step parents and they've been with them longer than they were ever with each other. Right. And so, yeah, I have, a, I have an older sister who's six years older than me. Um, I definitely followed in her footsteps in a lot of ways. Like she exposed me to a whole ton of music and right. influenced me that way. She was the original rude, uh, by the nice. way. Yeah. We had a uh, different coach, uh, same coach for sports uh it was a track coach for her and a football coach for me and uh so she got called rude and then i came up the ranks and it became rude too but did not take it with me to, when i moved to wyoming that was all in oregon and mm -hmm. uh it kind of grew organically by high school that flask rude is just really hard to say and guys right. call each other by their last name so it became rude pretty quickly and uh, she was a huge shadow in my life growing up because everyone's like, oh, you're Rochelle's little brother. And uh, get to Wyoming. That wasn't the case because she was off to college by then. Right. One of the one of the cool things about growing up in Lusk was that uh, uh, several of my high school teachers have been my folks as high school teachers as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and like my stepmom, uh, she was my third grade teacher, but she wasn't my stepmom at the time they were together and everything. And so my friends would come over to my dad's house and like, what do we call her? Like Sandy, Miss Layton. I don't, I don't know what to do. And I'll be like, here we call her Sandy, but in class we got to call her Miss Layton. That's how it is. And, uh, and then I get to meet all my former teachers later in life, like as adults and stuff and, and seeing how they're just, you know, humans and their teachers and, the, and, and everything like that instead of being like you know the larger in life figures they were when i was actually in the classes and so that was always interesting and then going back and visiting that elementary school um i feel like a giant it's like so perfectly built for kids and uh it was weird to go back after a while but yeah i was uh 
to run into a lot of that. And my dad was a teacher in Sandy, which was the next town over from Gresham. And to the day, we can't even walk around that town without like at least three generations recognizing him. Yeah. He taught for a long time. And, uh, but he was a tough teacher for a third grade teacher. I I sat in his class a few times and I was like, I'm glad I was never there. I like my (laughs) stepmom for a teacher. She read like when she'd read books to classes, I don't even know if they do that anymore, but she do all these crazy cool voices. She was very artistic, still is. And so she was very entertaining as a teacher. And they were some of the first people in their districts to bring like computers into the school, Commodore, Commodore 64s, Apples, those kind of things. And so I was the guinea pig of how to teach kids how to use a lot of them. And then I got to teach other kids. So and then I moved to Wyoming and I didn't have that influence anymore. And I wanted to be outside. I wanted to play sports more. And so I didn't really stick with the computers and everything. So as a kid, what were you into growing up? Um, were you academic? Were you athletic? Yeah, I was. I, I started out pretty athletic. I played a lot of baseball uh, okay. when I was young, uh, up until I broke my arm in the third grade. Oh. And, uh, then I put on some weight and all of a sudden, you know, growth spurt and weight gain and a summer not playing and all of a sudden I lost it. But I also did some martial arts. I did okay. that for five years. And that's been a real big influence on me even now. Not so much the punching and the kicking and the high ah as much yeah. as discipline and the, and just the understanding that, uh, you know, there there's a better way out than raising a fist. There's a better way out than raising my voice. Gotcha. There's uh, uh, having that civil discourse and that high regard for others, no matter what. Um, I can I can still name. My Taekwondo, my first Taekwondo instructor, Bert Pond, I believe he's up in Cody at this point. Um, yeah, he, he, you know, he introduced me to some people out of Sheridan that uh, were with the American Kyukido Federation, and they really emphasized that, you know, it's it's the discipline and finding a better way to handle the situation is what we really want you to take away from it. And then, I mean, then if you got to throw down, well, okay, <laughs> then, then then you know that you've done them as much as you can to avoid it. So that was important. Uh, obviously, my love of baseball is is important. The Sandlot was instrumental in that. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, to this day, I, I still I you'll hear me at work going, "You're killing me, Smalls." Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, tonight I was before I turned on AEW, I was cursing at the Rockies because it looks like they're going to drop their third straight to the Phillies and. Uh, we got nothing on the mound right now. It was a freelance struggle the other night. And then her man Marquez only made it three and two thirds last night. And, uh, uh, yeah, I just, <laughs> the wheels come off. So there was that, but I got into academics. I got into star Trek and star Wars. So I was kind of, a uh, stereotypical nerdy kid for a little while. And then long about fifth grade, I got into horses and rodeo and it was really, into that side of things and and that that kind of culminated in the fact that you know i've been to frontier days a number of times but i've also spent a lot of time around the local rodeo scene following a guy named dale rising okay uh, who i looked up to as a kid um was learning to bulldog from him learning to steer wrestle from him oh wow uh, you know so let's fall off of one large moving animal onto another <laughs> reasonably large moving animal and wrestle it to the ground but I love being around that. I spent one summer before I started high school working on a ranch, out okay. fixing fence, moving cows, doing all that stuff. So 
even though you wouldn't know it by my leather jacket, my, my biker boots, most of the time, I've got a cowboy history in me. So I, I really, uh, the two years I spent in Denver really kind of brought that back out to me. Uh, <laughs> there's a Neil McCoy song from the nineties. Uh, I forget what his big hit was, but he was like a, a two hit wonder country guy. Uh-huh. And there's a song that he did called the city put the country back in me. And as much as I really enjoyed living in Denver and probably will want to live in an urban environment again at some point as I pursue social work, okay, um, I my country roots are really important to me. Yeah, I you know it's I was suburb of Portland, Oregon for my first thirteen years, so bigger population. I moved to Laramie, which I hated, freaked me out. Like <laughs> it was very much a big fish, small pond place. Yeah. And, uh, so I knew my ticket out was, I didn't realize academics could have been, but I just did enough to play sports. So I thought my ticket out was playing football and, uh, I didn't, I got recruited, but not enough to get me out of Laramie. And I went to UW and, uh, probably started like Laramie my senior year slash college, but always knew I had to go. Like I had to get out at some point. And yeah, right after college, or maybe a year after college, I moved to New York. And yeah, maybe New York put the country back to me. I don't know, because I ended up back in Laramie. And uh, I thought I'd only be here like a couple of years. And now I'm on year 19. Right. And, uh, I mean, thank you. Yeah, when I was texting a friend earlier about uh, about this interview, I was yeah. saying, he, he and I got to be friends 17 years ago now. So, <laughs> so yeah. It's a, it's a, was one of the best decisions I made to come back because I worked in TV news and it really burned me up. I was more of a sports videographer when I left UW than doing hard news. And if I would have done sports in New York, I probably would have stayed longer, but hard news and to do that wears you out. And then I was there for nine 11 and, and that's a whole lot of, um, just stuff to deal in i'm sure i have you know stuffed it down somewhere inside i can't watch 9-11 movies like there's a lot of stuff i just i know it existed and everything i covered so much of it and uh, i'm just like yeah i'm good with not having to do that again and education uh is fun to work in at the end of the day you feel like you're uh part of the solution so yeah. uh yeah i maybe i i even though i work in it and behind the scenes it it definitely uh feels better at the end of the day going all right at least people are still getting educated not what do i cover tomorrow some crazy murder i can't wait and and stuff like that but yet i it took to get away to come back to like i I, I do like laramie i'm not sure i could live anywhere else because i haven't lived anywhere smaller and uh in wyoming but like the the thought of moving back to an urban area i'm like no 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 I do not want anything to do with that if I don't have to. Um, but, you know, if I'm a millionaire and have gazillion houses, maybe, yeah, one in yeah. <laughs> every area. Yeah, but, you don't have to stay, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't mind, I don't mind that happening. Um, being a millionaire, eventually, whatever. Who knows? Yeah. Got to play the lottery to do that kind of stuff or win in Vegas. And that hasn't happened yet. So, uh, so you get into, well, Star Wars and Star Trek. Okay, what do you like more? That's a solid. I tend to I I I think you and I had this conversation many a night sitting at Lovejoy's, but yeah, I tend probably. to go 
Star Trek simply because of the social commentary. I don't mind the Kelvin timeline movies. I think they're perfectly serviceable action sci-fi movies, but they lack that geopolitical commentary that I craved. And it's really interesting how that worked out because when I got to high school, I played football my freshman year and I, frankly, I hated every second of it. Yeah. Uh, it, it just athletics weren't for me at that time. Now, if you'd asked me my senior year, I really contemplated going out my senior year because at that time I was looking military and I wanted to be part of the unit and I wanted to be, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't go out, but I really contemplated it. But I got into speech and debate for the same reasons that I was into Star Trek. Okay. Being very, very successful doing that kind of stuff. So in high school, I was academically inclined, um, typically principal's honor roll and, and all stuff like that. I was doing speech and debate and having a lot of success with that. I eventually took three state championships in speech and debate. Um, I was also doing music, any ensemble I could play in. So I was playing guitar, uh, doing, so during the summer, essentially I played rock and roll covers, learning Van Halen and learning Eric Clapton and stuff like that. But my, I was very touched by a guy named Randy Rose in, in, his wife taught me singing from the time I joined children's choir in third grade up through the eighth grade. And then I got into all his ensembles in high school because he was on the high school side of things. And he got me playing jazz band with my guitar, which opened up my guitar playing just exponentially because it exposed me to guys like George Benson, exposed me to Pat Metheny, uh, to, uh, you know, all of these musicians that I otherwise would not, not be into. And it was very, very cool because even in high school, I was getting into, I was getting the opportunity to go to the national show choir competition and see people from, uh, you know, all over the country bringing something different to the table that, that you just, you don't get the opportunity to see when you live in a 1500 person town, cow town right. in West Wyoming. And, and that's not to say that Lusk is bad. It's just to oh. say that there is a limitation there. And one of the, the things that I can I can think of right now that uh, I was talking to a friend who's really into the Grateful Dead, my vet, my best friend, Aaron Rowan, uh, I was I was talking to her one time trying to introduce her to George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, because I'm sitting there going, if you're into the dead, yeah, you like that. a big jump into George Clinton because they got that same kind of jazz band energy, yeah. but uh, 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 jam band energy, but they got the jazz thing going on with the counterpoint and all the stuff happening. And, and that is a direct result of me listening and playing jazz when I was in high school, because otherwise I probably never would have gotten past Van Halen and Motley Crue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it takes, you know, especially with music going outside your comfort zone or the norm. Uh, my high school best friend uh, was a bass player. And mm-hmm. and his and his good friend was a drummer, and so they were all exploring. They were exploring like the the early like garage band type of of learning how to play, you know, hard, fast, limited chords. It was interesting, but they were so that went along with their musical choices. Why well, was I was just diving into hip hop a ton, but next thing you know, they're you know exposed me to Faith No More, which wasn't a household name at the time. Uh, gosh, there, there, there are some bands. I wish I could pull them off the top of my head, but I was definitely like, and then, and then being able to appreciate the bass in a song, you know, mm-hmm. it's not lead guitar, it's the bass. And, and so, um, influenced by a lot of ba- bands that, that feature the bass players and stuff like that. And so 
that wouldn't have happened with, without me going to a small town, big fish football players, loved them as teammates, not necessarily want to be in my social circle. I know if they listen to this, like, oh, we were cool then, but I wasn't a partying. I wasn't doing that kind of stuff. I was uh, hanging out with the bass player and watching. He got me into Star Trek. I do like Star Wars a whole lot more, but it made me understand Star Trek a whole lot more from him. Um, He was more technical, um, had all books and stuff. And I learned a lot about, yeah, Star Trek. Uh, Admittedly, when I, I probably got into a little more watching Next Generation. Me too, uh, me too. Because when, when uh, you know, Kirk and them, they were kind of older at the time of their acting started for Star Trek. And by the time they're making the movies, it was a rough sell sometimes because they'd like get shot by a laser and they'd be like, oh, okay, well, I'll move now. And, and Star Wars was way ahead of on that one. Yeah. And then, but yeah, next generation definitely. Um, and my friend wisened me up to Star Trek. I do like Star Wars more. Behind me is a whole bunch of Star Wars stuff. And, uh, but yet, like, respect the track. I don't make fun of. Yeah. And, and, and that's the whole thing. Yeah. I've got, I've got mad respect for, for the level of storytelling and the universe creation that has gone into Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Um, I, 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 and I, I will tell you that that both sets of fans I can either love or hate depending on <laughs> sure how. yeah 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 uh, and it really does come down to reactions for me is it hey these can both coexist you know yeah. and and whatnot or is it my, my Star Trek is better than Star Wars or Star Wars is better than Star Trek and yeah. I'm kind of going you know there's room for both oh yeah and, yeah. And we should acknowledge we're huge sci-fi fans together. And that opens up a whole world of entertainment and movies and, and stories and stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It was, people are like, wow, you sounded kind of nerdy. And I was like, I liked what I liked then. I don't know if that was nerdy or not, you know, but I played sports. That was the side part of it. Well, and and so, it yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of the same way because even though I, I didn't care to play athletics myself uh, into high school and stuff like that, while I'm doing music and speech and debate, I'm also watching auto racing and learning all this stuff about IndyCar yeah. and Formula One uh, and NASCAR. And and then I'm also watching baseball. Our, our mutual friend Wayne Schaefer can tell you that I, I tend to be a human stat book during the season huh. for teams. And, you know, I, I, I just had a guy comment to me the other day uh, that uh, just like uh, uh, a mutual acquaintance, Laura Smith used to say that I commentate before the commentators when it comes to race. I'll say something and almost verbatim on TV, they'll be saying the same thing. And it's, it's one of these deals where my mind, one of the reasons I was so successful in speech and debate and with athletics is because I can absorb that information and process it very, very quickly. But the other part is, is then the application for whatever reason has come easy to me. And that's, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, In some ways it made me kind of socially hard. It was was a hard (laughs) sell on some people, but uh, as I've gotten older, it's, it's gotten easier. It wasn't so easy in high school. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've broadcasting degree, but, I was behind the scenes more um, than I ever was being a voice or anything like that, or being on doing interviews and stuff like that. It took a long time to develop my confidence behind actually to be pretty good at it. 
and then be like, okay, I can be in front of the camera now. And just listening to what people say and especially like in sports and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I, I'm like, there one guy paints picture and the other guy drops you knowledge bombs throughout it, color and, and play by play. And you can pick up either side of it. And, but yet I do find myself when I get ahead of the, the announcing crew, I'm like, Oh yeah. And yeah. They're like, what, how'd you know yeah, you're going to say that? And I'm like, you're in the UO shirt. And I remember the first times it was happening was when I was yeah. watching. Nitro. When you were watching what? Nitro. Oh, Nitro. Oh yeah. Yeah. Beginning ahead of Tony Schiavone and Mike Tanay. Oh yeah. We actually, three of us put on Nitro in our TV studio while we were in college hit mute, hit record, and we called the Nitro play-by-play, <laughs> color, the three, we are a three-man crew. And I think we would rotate out every so often. So it was a two-man crew, and the other third guy would switch cameras. And so, yeah, I wish we still had that. It's, it's got to exist somewhere on a VHS, but VHS probably eating itself by now. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that, that, speaking of the wrestling... We're both big wrestling fans. I got the NWO shirt on. How did you get into wrestling? So my best friend growing up and into high school is a guy named Ty from Lusk. Okay. Um, I'm still in touch with his dad uh, on Facebook, and I run into him when I'm in Lusk and whatnot. Uh, Dusty is, is his dad's name, and he was into wrestling. Ty and I went to Taekwondo together. Uh, actually, Ty started out uh, with a group of kids that were bullying me at one point. Huh. He got called into the principal's office and got his, his priorities straightened out and wound up being my best friend for a lot of years. And on Saturdays we would, we would be playing, but everything had to stop at four Oh five local because that's, <laughs> you know, uh, WCW Saturday night with, uh, the American dream that the road, come on. And, uh, you know, so started watching with him grudgingly at first, Long about 96, for whatever reason, I started putting Raw on, on Monday nights. I noticed it was on before MacGyver or some crap. Oh, like yeah. And uh, got into Shawn Michaels, and then the NWO hit. And so I, I tell people that Shawn Michaels got me to start watching, and I remember distinctly the first Raw I intentionally turned on the next week to find out what happened was uh, after Good Friends, Better Enemies, right before Nash left for WCW. Oh. Um, because they had the no holds barred match in your house, and I wanted to see who won because you know I didn't understand yeah, determined in those days, and uh, and then the NWO thing was hitting real real big, and I knew that Ty and Dusty were going up to Hog Wild that summer, and, and so I flipped on Nitro one night, and yeah, the NWO thing was big, but it was when they were at uh, the Orlando Studios or the Disney Studios during the Olympics. Oh, okay, and all the fights backstage were going on. So that yeah. was a lot more interesting than Sergeant Craig Pittman versus you know, whoever. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got into Sting and, and, and then Flair, uh, Ric Flair. So I, I tell people, Shawn Michaels got me watching, Ric Flair kept me watching. And uh, right now, you know, I look back on it. Of course, I, I try and keep up as much as I can, but being an adult, I don't have as many hours. <laughs> Um, but Jericho, the fact that he's still wrestling and I've been watching him since his WCW debut is huge to me. The fact that we're still watching sting and he's still putting on quality matches. Uh, yeah. He scares me, but I'm a still a stinger. Yeah. Yeah. Right? 
yeah, uh, uh, I think it's fantastic. You know, there's been a lot of years when I took it off because uh, the product uh, was so splintered. Uh, it was either dominated by McMahon and company, and then the independent stuff was splintered or so hard to find. Yeah, you know, Impact, for instance, was jumping around between so many networks. It seemed like they had a different TV deal every other month and stuff like that. And I just couldn't keep up. You know, I was, I, there was other things in my life, you know, some, some, some things that I've had to deal with and, and stuff like that, that just took more center stage. But now that I'm, I'm able to watch, I still get a kick out of it. And it's not like, uh, you know, if I miss AEW, it's not the tragedy that it, it was when I was 14 years old, but yeah, tonight I was, you know, when you asked me to do this interview, it was like, yeah, we got to make sure it's after AEW. After AEW. Yeah. Uh, she hates that I tell this story. My stepsister would watch Saturday night Portland wrestling, which was regional territory. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, I, we, when we started watching Piper had left, so he wasn't quite, he wasn't, he was in WWE by then or WWF. And, uh, so it was like Billy Jack Haynes. Um, he was a superstar there. He had the Oregon stuff on. Uh, there was a guy named Steve Regal, not the Steve Regal we know, William Regal, a different Steve Regal. And I had to look him up the other day. I was like, I remember this guy because he was one of my favorites and he couldn't wrestle in a match because he got his eye burned across the top of the rope, which everybody does it now today is in there fine. But <laughs> it was interesting. And uh, so we'd watch it on Saturdays when I'd stay at my dad's house. And the product, I mean, was just so subpar compared to what even WWF was doing at the time. Next thing you know, I'm flipping channels and there's this WWF. It's crazy production values and everything. And it seemed like all the big stars were landing there. I think WrestleMania three was like when Hogan Simon John was my first WrestleMania. That's when I was starting to take a very big interest and kept the fan had like, I wish they still had the figures from back in the day. Oh yeah. Um, at a Hogan and a Sheik and, and stuff like that. And I, I can't say I was ever really like a Hulkamaniac. I knew he was the champ, but like he had it for like four years and there were so many other that made you get invested in like the intercontinental belt and the tag belts because they were wrestling all the time. Hogan would come out, maybe do a tag match. He'd defend the title once every four months or something. It sucked. So I was never like, Oh great. I'm super Hogan fan. Right. Yeah, more into like I I was my first WWE event, WWF event was in Portland. Um headlining match was Bulldogs versus Heart Foundation. Holy crap. Yeah, in a cage, and Jimmy was running around the outside of it. And uh the megaphone to the, one of the Bulldogs, I can't remember who it was basically it was over and the foundation won. But like Macho Man versus Ricky Steamboat. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on um and that's when the walk to the ring was just really tight so you could run over and slap shoulders and everything and then as they walked to the ring i slapped macho's shoulder as he was running, walking out he was all doing his thing and uh so i was probably into that and then i moved to wyoming and uh i got tbs and that's when i started saturday nights was started watching that stuff which was nwa and then wcw mm-hmm. and uh and not too far after that clash of champions won sting versus flair 
and I became a stinger from there on out. I was a big sting fan, still am. And, uh, and then kept watching and, it, and you say, you know, you stepped out here and there. I never stepped out because wrestling was like the one constant that I had through my life through change and everything. I could at least focus on some wrestling for a little bit when life got a little bit sideways. And I always knew I had a couple of friends out there. They're always willing to talk about wrestling. You included that any given time we could talk some wrestling. So that was always good. Didn't necessarily have to talk about serious stuff in life. And there were times where I wanted to leave WWE when they had no competition because you could call it out like announcers be like, all right, here's this storyline again with the yeah. same six wrestlers. And so, yeah, it, I mean, today I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm a big old Orton fan. I'm surprised I made it 20 years. And, uh, and so yeah, I, yeah. Given, given all those shoulder injuries, he yeah. Was like, Let's go. Yeah. As, as Jeff said to me, the other night during raw he's like 20 year man crush for you and i was like I <laughs> <laughs> and uh because we got like the first house show after orton won the title was i think in loveland and uh we were there and he well, i think he went against triple h defend the title but it's not on tv and so we're like, we saw the first title defense, you know, he won, eventually lost Triple H because they were working out their match for the next pay-per-view. But it was the evolution breakup, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was right around then. Yeah. yeah. And so, but yeah, I mean, like when NWO and DX came out around, they they changed the landscape because it became more of a product towards my age than it was a younger kids now they're going back to they're like you know get keep the kids in there so can't bleed on wwe but you can in AEW, and you can say all the curse words <laughs> one one of the things that uh we've been doing here is uh uh here at the house is uh we've got peacock premium all right so i've been back and watching old nitros now one thing that's really disheartening is like you know the first first match on nitro the very first night oh, yeah. Pillman versus liger fantastic oh. match. They, they put on a clinic for 12 minutes just absolutely beautiful yeah but it is also really tough sometimes for me to look at brian pillman jr on aew and oh yeah what a career brian pillman would have had or or when i scroll through some of my wrestling groups on facebook and they show uh, a picture where bret hart is the only living member of the hart foundation anymore something like oh, that yeah, that's true. one of the reasons i had to step away from wrestling was because it was becoming too tragic for me. And, you know, you and I were sitting down at Lovejoy's the night we got yeah. to meet Eddie Guerrero and, uh, yeah, right, right after we were commiserating about that. And, and uh, you know, along with Greg Grisham and our crowd at that in those days. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's been really tough and it's, it's, it's a business that having read Flair's book and Bischoff's book and Steve Austin's book and all these books and, and some of them that aren't through WWE's ghostwriters. So I, so like I read Ted DiBiase's first book before he uh, got back with WWE with legends. Oh. Um, it's right after he became an ordained minister and whatnot. Okay. He things to talk about, about the business because he killed his dad and iron Mike DiBiase died in the ring. And uh, you know, Ted, uh, suffered a career-ending injury and wasn't being very well taken care of by the WWE uh, at the time. 
Uh, thankfully, he had a Lloyd's of London insurance policies, by understanding, if I recall correctly. But, you know, things like that. It's a tough business. And sometimes, yeah. you know, in good conscience, I felt like I was supporting something that 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 was causing guys to go out there and, and really tear themselves up on my behalf. And, but at the same time, knowing our, our mutual friend Jimbo and, you know, yeah. he did the love of it. And and, you know, he doesn't seem to regret it a bit. So, yeah, I mean, there there's definitely a dark side of it and there's a whole series about that uh dark side was it dark side of the ring yeah yeah i think they just finished up another season yeah i mean and that's a great show but it gives you the real on it and uh i mean when it was constant barrage of finding out wrestlers had passed away and you could nine times out of ten it was probably painkillers and alcohol just Mm -hmm. because those kind of bumps, yeah, you can prevent some pain, but you're How not do you learn to fall off a twenty foot ladder. Yeah, you're not gonna prevent them all, yeah. and uh, and so yeah, I feel for them and everything, and I wish their companies had taken better character care of them back then. They're kind of working on that kind of situation now, and it's almost like the NFL was that way too. You know, just recycle players once you're done. You know, no health insurance, no nothing. Um, yeah, it, it shortens your life. And uh, I, I think they, they've learned, yeah, there's going to still be tragedy with these guys, but they have wellness programs and stuff like that. Yeah, some guys don't get tested. I know that that's probably true. And uh, but yet they are looking out for them because they, they probably hurt a whole lot more because it was their friends and their people. So they got to be like, we got to make sure these guys don't. Well, and gotta I, save I, them I, from themselves, but yet we're asking them to do a lot to fall off a twenty foot ladder and not be able to take some. You well, know, yeah. tonight I posted in our out of nowhere wrestling group. Yeah, there was a spot there where Sammy, you'll see it, where Sammy comes off the rope and it looks like he flat missed, yeah. and or comes off the top of the ladder. It looks like he flat missed Scorpio Sky, and I don't want to spoil the match anymore yeah. than that. It it was it it made my heart jump because I'm sitting there going, he lands off center and and. And, and it was just, holy crap. And uh, so, you know, I, and then that spot with Sting here a few weeks back, you oh, know, yeah. decided he needed to do a table spot at 60 some years old. Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, it, but at the same time, I, I came out of my chair going, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> was it the pay-per-view where he jumped off the, he was at the top of the, the uh, like in the crowd, but like where you come the portal. He jumped out the portal onto guys. And mm-hmm. I saw him setting it up down below. And I was like, there's only Sting up there. I was like, oh my God, here we go. Cause he was slowly working into it. He was doing like jump off turnbuckles, slowly working into this. And I was like, and then he did a table spot. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, I, yeah, I like to watch him, but he scares me and that I don't want to. I, I don't want to see him hurt himself anymore because I was, I was such a big fan. And, and every time I see Seth Rollins do the buckle bomb on somebody and I love Seth Rollins, I'm like that broke sting right there. Why do you keep doing it? And, but yet most of the time it works out. It's, it's not necessarily the, you know, in in a lot of ways, our, our love of wrestling, this conversation about wrestling is sort of my uh, love analogous almost to my love of car racing because I think about your constant was was uh 
wrestling, my constant has always been auto racing. Okay. Go clear back to 91 Indy 500 watching Rick Mears and uh, Mike Lance Red duel it out. And uh, just thinking that it was the coolest stuff ever. And, uh, you know, to the point now where thankfully we've got Peacock here at the house. So the other day I sat and watched the Texas race that I missed the other day. Ah. I prefer open wheels. So I prefer IndyCar and Formula One to NASCAR. But if it's got four wheels, I probably won't turn it off. And I'm getting really into motorcycle racing right now huh? because of the fact that uh, World Superbike uh, has adjusted their formula again and it's back to being competitive and I really like it. But uh, when Dale Earnhardt Sr., he was my guy growing up. Okay. When we lost him in 2001, I couldn't watch any racing for a couple of years. It, it just, it was too hard. I bet. That's, you know, and I've seen guys die since then. Uh, notably, I was watching when Dan Weldon hit the catch fence in Las Vegas in, in uh, 2011. Yeah, 2011. Uh, I knew right away we'd lost one then. Um, but I saw Greg Norgo, I, you know, all Ayrton Senna when I was younger and, and, and some of these things. And yet I still go back to it because, you know, I'd love to tell people that auto racing should be about research and development, which effectively it is. Any, any safety feature in your passenger car came off the racetrack. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's still about the thrills. And, sure. Oh, yeah. Um, I really wish I'd had the opportunity growing up to, to do some. I don't think Asa and I are ever going to get around to turning my Nova into a hobby stock. I, I've got other priorities in life at this point at 38, but uh, it, it, it's one of those things that there's been some rough periods in my life with my dad too, but that was one of those things that he and I could always connect on was, was racing because he, he built uh, hill climbers down at Pikes Peak in wow. Colorado uh, back in the seventies and eighties and tells me cool stories. He met a few legends, Bobby Unzer being one of them. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's something that's real important to me. Uh, when Laura and I were together, she used to laugh cause she just knew on Sundays that she, <laughs> she better garden or something because <laughs> I was going to be watching racing all day. My, uh, I've told you this before my uncle, my stepdad's brother worked on race cars, built race cars out in Portland. So we went, we went along to local races, um, and stuff. They were, they were entertaining motorcycle and car. I saw a lot of both. And uh, I was a lot of time I was like, this is so loud. And we, I mean, we were with one of the, you know, pit guys. So we weren't in the stands. We were like in the pit, like mm -hmm. we were in a special spot. So we are very close to the action. And uh, yeah, being a little kid can't come much, you know, anyway, don't want to get hit by a vehicle or anything like that. And so, but I remember that my uncle probably could have, um worked with was it steve petty not yeah was this person in petty's organization richard petty. richard petty yeah um had an opportunity but my uncle um he's now passed but he didn't pay his taxes he was you know for many many years so everything had to be uh in cash under the book so that he probably could have made it on the big circuit if he would have been up to date on his taxes but kept it local and stuff. But my first car, um, he owed my dad, my stepdad some money and our friend drove it out from Oregon and he had worked on it. It was a uh, 70, God, what year is it? 76 Skyhawk. It was almost all glass. It seemed like, 
Like if you had a Pinto and you just stretched out the back a little bit, yeah. but it also had like a glass ceiling and he lowered it, which great for out in Oregon, not great in Laramie where you have the, the dips for the snow melt off and everything like that. And he, and initially had racing tires on it. So um, not good for like snow or any sort of real yeah. weather. Yeah. It was interesting. I think it's Alaska drive was from, portland to here uh because they did not like the altitude um the carburetor had to constantly readjusted to handle yeah. the altitude here uh, and had, yeah yeah and i'd have it stall out at like stoplights because the carburetor locked up yeah sweet so i'd have to like shove a knife in there and start up and we go i mean that didn't happen it happened enough it was probably the perfect car for 16 17 year old because i wasn't driving out of town it wasn't good enough to do that and uh I had to slow down at, at the intersections because of the dips in the road for drain off. And so it was good. It had a red leather interior. Um, so I utilized that Portland stuff, trailblazer stuff all around it. But yeah, I, I remember that going, yep, his last ride was here, but you could tell my uncle was working on it because he put a lot of touches into it to make it more race car looking and yeah. such. And and so, but yeah, I, looking back, I wish I would have paid more attention to a lot of that stuff. Um, I was just involved with other sports were on my mind, wrestling and such. So I never really respect NASCAR because he worked in it or just any sort of auto racing um, because of the thrill. Because I was like, I can never do that. And then I was sitting next to a group of people playing fantasy NASCAR. And so, I, and I was watching football and I mean, they had more people in the bar for that than, than football. And I learned so much about racing that day. So much. I just had no clue what half the stuff meant. I learned so much and I was like, wow, I respect what it takes is from getting a team together, building car, like all that down to racing and why they do certain moves and everything. And I was like, ah, I get it now. I get it. The and, amount. Uh, technical and engineering acumen that yeah. is, is absolutely stunning in the I, t I took a college class to restart my college career here about three years ago and i'm actually going back full-time this year i'm not going to get the opportunity to do this kind of fun writing but for that class i got to write a term paper of my choice and i wrote it on a guy named dan gurney who should be on the mount rushmore of auto racing okay and just talking about his development of things that now his company, All American Racers, they don't really do much in the racing category anymore. They build stuff for SpaceX oh, because yeah. aerodynamics, development of aerodynamics, very applicable to the aerospace industry yeah, rather than just racetracks. So you know that kind of stuff is uh, way cool, and you know I, I, it would be fun to do something with the Nova, but you know it just <laughs> uh, got a 350 small block in it with uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, I think Asa stole the four barrel and put it on his Monte Carlo, but uh -huh. yet, uh, you know, that's what I drove in high school was a 77 Nova. It was, uh, it was okay. a lot of <laughs> I think my friend had a Nova in high school, the guy, the bass player. Hmm. Yeah. You guitar players <laughs> and the Novas. So you're in high school, kicking ass at debate, being very academic, um, was college the next choice the next way to go college was the next choice uh i had been i went to boys state okay uh, 
there. So that'd be between junior and senior year. Right. And uh, loved it. And that's when I really started looking at the military and military was also uh, something that was on my plate and I contemplated it. And then nine 11 happened and Mm -hmm. I was pretty hell bent on doing it in some capacity. Um, The unfortunate reality is is that at 18, I wasn't quite ready to sign 10 years of my life away without college. Uh Uh, College was my first choice. The military was my second choice. So I wound up pursuing some Naval ROTC scholarships. Now, this is straight up Top Gun stuff, you know, (laughs) our childhood that I watched Top Gun and I wanted to be in the Navy. I didn't necessarily want to be a pilot. I didn't necessarily want to be on a carrier, but I wanted to be on the Navy. Actually, I tended to go for submarines, uh, which later on is what I would eventually rate as, even though the Navy didn't retain me. But uh, uh, so I tried for a Naval ROTC scholarship. I also tried for a full ride with uh, uh, Michigan State. Um, they offered me about 12,000 a year, which is about half of what it cost in 2002 to go to Michigan State. I bet. (laughs) Naval ROTC was going to offer me some in addition to go there. And ultimately I just decided to go ahead and stay in Wyoming because as much as I fancied myself a man of the world at 18 years old, uh, with aspirations to study political science and go become a United States Senator, I wasn't quite gutsy enough to move halfway across the country and, and, and do some of that stuff. So I wound up at UW. I wound up in Air Force ROTC. I wound up taking honors courses. Um, and that first semester was a lot of fun. Um, joined Sigma Alpha Epsilon. Uh, my fraternity is still a big part of my life. I'm still in sure. touch with a lot of those guys from those days. Real tight with some of them. Um, they're, they're still, I mean, they're in Cheyenne and Laramie, the ones that I'm, I'm primarily in sure. touch with. Uh, I would say that those guys, along with uh, you and Grisham and some of the people from the Lovejoy's days, are are the guys that uh, the the people that I've kept in touch with the most over these years. Um, just because in high school, like I said earlier, I didn't really have that social acceptance, and it wasn't until uh-huh. college that all of a sudden people they they understood that okay, you're smart and you got a lot of talent, but we just want to have a beer with you, man. <laughs> well, I also think like. Also, too, whenever you, uh, you know, a lot of this town is is college orientated, especially, you know, we're all here to do the same thing. So why carry with you nonsense from high school or how it went down then? And and the people you meet don't give a shit about what you did in high school. Like yeah. they're going to meet that guy right there in front of you. Yeah, I got a beer, but and all that. But. And it, it wasn't bad. The last the last year in high school was really a lot of fun, too. Yeah, I think we'd all gotten old enough and, and mature enough to understand that debate and wrestling and football and basketball and music and all these things coexist, and even in a little tiny West Wyoming. Because yeah. if I wasn't at a speech and debate meet, I was in the pep band supporting my, my athletic friends, you know, my athletic classmates, and they understood that. But it really was that breath of fresh air and that stepping away from roles that we had been oh, yeah. in for you know 13 years of schooling because there was there was 35 in my graduating class and there was uh 14 of us i think that had done kindergarten through senior year of high school together wow so we knew each other Definitely. <laughs> it, it 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 is difficult particularly i think at that age to recognize when you're stuck in a social role and and make changes to step out of that easily 
you know, I, I don't think it's easy anytime, but to recognize that. So um, college was, was really good for those first couple of years. Um, yeah, I, I worked on campus the first year I worked in the athletic department. Um, uh-huh. That would have been Vic Coning's last year. Ah, no, I did not live in Laramie at the time. Oh, dude, we went three and nine on the season. It was horrible. Uh, it was terrible. I think he had an over season, didn't he? Didn't he have a season where he didn't win a game? Like, no, I don't think so. That year, we we tore down goalposts when we beat the Citadel. For God's sake! Oh my God! Because it was it was we didn't know yeah. if we were going to get another victory that season. <laughs> was that two thousand two? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was. Uh, it was a rough year. Now, at the same time, the basketball team was yeah, kicking butt games, and so it was. It was interesting working for Mad Dog in the athletic department um, because Coning we knew was on the way out. Yeah, and, and then Joe Glenn came in, and he was just this dynamo, and he came down and introduced himself to all us lowly laundry guys, and, and was just being Joe Glenn. And yeah. meanwhile. Uh, uh, it was McLean, Steve McLean, right? Yep. That uh, uh, was coaching basketball, and he was a little bit of a lunatic, but he was friendly. Yeah, and he appreciate all of us on the sports side. And the basketball players, the the, the football players were were friendly enough, but not really. Uh, you know, they weren't going out of their way to be friendly to us. Whereas the basketball players, they they'd always stop and chat with us and see how we were doing, and that was really cool. Um, that changed when Joe Glenn hit. He pretty much made it abundantly clear that the lowliest guy is just as important as, as he was. So uh, it was, it was kind of cool to see that culture change over there at the, at the rack and, and, and watch as the program changed. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, The next year I worked for the foundation that sucked. It was no fun at all. No. Um, So, and I don't, I don't want to put down because it's a necessary part. Oh yeah. Uh, there are people was, out there that are born fundraisers and yeah. I don't, I'm not one of them and you're not <laughs> one of them, I guess. <laughs> I'm not either. So. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but that's kind of when uh, some of my, we were just talking when we paused there about uh, bipolar and, and some depression oh, yeah. started kind of appearing. And, and that's when I started contemplating taking a break because I was finding it more and more difficult to maintain my grades and, and, a lot of that I feel like was the standard I set for myself that I had to excel, excel, excel. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned in thir- at 38 that I didn't know at 20 was that you can just be, you know, you don't have to be the top dog at every damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, that I know I went to college with a few people and my sister went through this, that um, high school came easy. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they excel, they were awesome at it. And then college pushes you. And especially if you take honors classes and stuff. And if it, you get frustrated, if it doesn't come as easy, but you still are getting reasonable grades, but it's just not coming as easy as right. it used to be. And then, so it's a lot of extra stress and going, I got to, you know, and then some people are like, I'm out, I'm done with this. Like, I'm not, I'm not succeeding. And I was like, not the greatest student, but I just kept at it. Mm-hmm. So I was satisfied with a BEC. I failed a few classes in my day. Um, but I watch these people not wash out, but just be like, the college didn't work for them. They're super smart people, but it just wasn't happening at the time. And uh, I was like, I got to stay with it with this because, man, I don't think I'm that smart of a dude. And so if I can put a degree behind this, 
<laughs> then maybe it'll work out. Like, uh, you know, someone will hire me or something. But I was just like, just stay with it. And I didn't feel that prepared for for college from my high school experience by any means. I didn't know how to take notes very well. I didn't know how to balance a checkbook, all that good stuff. Yeah. I, and, and being an athlete too, especially in a varsity football player, some things get like put out for you with ease, not grades mm-hmm. and stuff, but they're, they kind of roll out the red carpet for that sport. Um, and maybe basketball too. And, and definitely in high school and we are good. So yeah, they definitely rolled it out. And so there are things like, Oh, I got to take care of that kind of stuff like happened in college and my mom and she got me doing laundry on my own and teaching me some basic meals to make. So once I was in an apartment scenario, she was prepping me and I was like, all right. And I always wanted to learn how to do a lot of those skills. Cause I saw my mom when she was not married to my stepdad between my dad and stepdad where she struggled. And I was like, I'm never going to think it's some woman's job to take care of me. I got to take care of myself. And uh, so I learned how to do stuff like that, but yet not prepared from high school to, to go into college and college was always the thing, especially moving to Laramie was going to be like, you, you're going to college. And my dad was like, yeah, you're going to college. Um, I thought I was going to play college football. And so I got recruited and, and went around and visited and there all coaches were like, I thought you were taller and I wasn't growing anymore about the same height that I was then. And uh, luckily at the time I was uh, in Wyoming, you could go to the university of Wyoming. If you just had a Wyoming university, uh, no, Wyoming high school diploma. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I taken the ACT I had enough to make it into basic colleges, not super academic ones, but um yeah it was interesting and i never thought i'd gone go into broadcasting like it wasn't a major of mine until second semester but behind the scenes my dad my stepdad was planting the seed and like he had me working for him in high school doing some tv stuff and i was in deca in high school so i was into marketing and advertising i wasn't very good at it but i like it got you out of town and you got to meet a lot of people from other places besides playing athletics against them. And so that was fun. And, uh, but yeah, my stepdad had me working in it. And then he's like, Oh, just intern for me, just do this. And next thing I know, I'm like, yep, I'm all in broadcasting. And it was kind of difficult because it became a family business then. Um, And then I worked for him and it was like, I could not miss any time like off work ever unless I was dead sick or I'd get a call from my mom and I'd be like, you're not my boss. I mean, you're my mom, but you're not him. But if he has a problem with me, just call. Like it turned into that kind of situation, which kind of sucked, (laughs) but he pushed me. He was always like, there'll be no nepotism. You will be the best. You know, there'll be no shortcuts. I give your bosses, your instructors, car blanche to, take you down a peg if I need to. And I was like, okay, okay. I see. And it made me good at what I did. And, and so, I mean, I appreciate that. And uh, I mean, I thought it was hot shit. And then I moved to New York after graduation and, and stuff like that. And I was just another worker bee that had talent at one level, but I was just another, another photog and everything. But uh, he gave me the skills to get there, but yeah, I did push me hard. And uh, I was like, couldn't wait to not work 
for like my my stepdad and then got a job underneath him well underneath another boss but underneath him a few years later down the line and it wasn't as as there was a good buffer we weren't at each other's wits ends very often right. we we're a good team and stuff but um yeah it was interesting because i was like oh that was a rough experience but now i'm going to work for him again in a roundabout way and but he is a great boss when i was a full-time worker because well, he built me I- I knew him there when we were working at the university. Yeah. Together. Just, you know, he, he struck me as, yes, he's got high standards, but he's very, very fair. Yeah. Very consistent. So, yeah. you know, uh, uh, worked with, I mean, I always knew when I had one of his classes, that one, I was going to have to follow him around with the camera. All, all oh, after. yeah. Yeah. Uh, two, you know, he was going to be on point. And if I had my stuff on point, it was going to be smooth. And it was, it was great. So, I always thought, thought, the, yeah. One of the things that was, uh, really important coming out of high school and going into uh, college was I got involved with a group called the Wyoming Leadership Seminar, which took sophomore from high school, used to be Hobie, Wyoming, uh, and took them for a three-day seminar in Casper and introduced them to community leaders from around the state and different places. You guys get nominated by outside community leaders. It's not something you apply for yourself. You get nominated by community members that observe it. I went to that and then I kept going back as a student staff member and then as a staff member and, and until it eventually uh, the people that were running it, uh, Rusty and Lynette Ward out of Casper, then went ahead and retired. And uh, it was really, really, it's another group there where one, I felt like I had to excel, but two, it, it was a breath of fresh air because um, sometimes, you know, we talk about the nepotism, we talk about the, the things that we see in small towns of Wyoming. Mm-hmm. It was really, really good for me to be surrounded by people that were shooting high like that. And I'm still in touch with some of those people. Uh, and, and I just, I think back about, you know, I was taking time. I mean, you knew me in the Lovejoy's days when I worked there and how many hours I was willing to put into the restaurant. Oh, but I would take time off from the restaurant to go be part of that seminar. All right. And, uh, you know, that was really important to me. And I, you know, in, in some ways I wonder if those sorts of opportunities are being offered to students today that, uh, you know, my mom, you know, just retired here three years ago uh, as a high school teacher. And, and uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, those are the things I think about now that I'm going into social work and stuff like that too. So, it, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, now that I'm, instead of being an outreach and being in IT and I'm fully immersed in every classroom on campus. And so my, actual office is in the middle of campus of Ross Hall. And uh, so I see I'm around students all the time when outreach, I wasn't as much as more of the students all around the state. And there was the ones that worked for me and stuff. But so now I'm more in tune to what they're wearing, what they're doing, what, what they're into. Um, yeah. What kind of stuff gets them ready for college. Cause I always kid my student texts right now. I'm like, you guys have such an awesome campus. I mean, I just talk about like the technology, the buildings and stuff. And they're like, well, where'd you go to school? And I'm like, here. And they're like, what? what? Has been updated in 40 yeah. years? I was like in the nineties and no, we didn't have this half this stuff. And I was like, uh, yeah, your union's awesome. Your libraries are awesome. Your gym is awesome. I was just like, you have a turf field. Yeah, none of that existed. And, and there's like seven more buildings. No, there's like, yeah, maybe seven total new more buildings and such. And so I was they're like, really? And I, if they ever call me grandpa, I will lose it. But uh, 
a lot of them I'm always look at. I'm like, if I ever chose to have kids, you could have been one of my children. Cause like a lot of my friends, kids are in college now and stuff. And they always be like, Rude's office is here. Do you ever need anybody? Go to him. I'm like, okay. I go, I'm not always there, but yeah, sure. And I go, I have jobs for them, but they're really hard. So they got to really want to work. I, my, the student tech jobs for IT that I employ, such a more difficult job than the outreach techs like yeah. I had or bridge operate. I mean, I, this is a lot more difficult. And usually it's a lot of uh, computer science majors and such that get into it and everything. But yeah, it's a more difficult job. It's hard on me. I think I've grayed up because of it. Oh, dude, me too. That's <laughs> how I know when it's time for a haircut. I need one right now. The oh, yeah. I'm gray comes in on the sides and yeah. I have hair and hair. I, my. <laughs> This last summer, my niece was shooting a video and I'm in the pool at my parents' house in Vegas and they pan across me in the pool and I'm like, who's that gray hair? Oh, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the gray hair <laughs> is, is wild. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. I, I don't want to. Yeah, do you can't tell as much. I'm almost to the point where I got to shave it because then it gets, I have like racing gray stripes. <laughs> and like by the time, first time I could grow a full beard, I had gray in it and I was like, I'm finally a man, but now I'm an old man. Like, this is not fair. Come on. I guess it's lucky to be a blonde and have, you know, baby face. So I got that. But yeah, it was, it was terrible. I was like, I want to grow a beard, but now I got gray beard. So I got to wait for it all to officially go gray once and then I'll let it grow again. But I stopped it because of wetter masks all the time. And I was like, I don't know how those people with big old beards wear the masks. That would have just been irritating half the time uh, for pandemic and such. So rewind back college. So you're thinking about taking a break because you're feeling some, some things, you know, now are bipolarism stuff. Yeah. So it, it was probably de- depressive episodes happening. Okay. Or even just depression at that time, it may not have developed into complete bipolar at that point. Gotcha. Uh, you know, at this, at this point, you know, now I'm, I'm properly medicated. I've, I've got uh some recovery under my belt and, and I, I have the ability to recognize when things are going south and and moreover i've got the willingness to listen to other people when they say austin are you sure you're okay you uh, uh, which is a big help but at that time it was so type a personality i've got to do 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 yeah and eventually you know i was working at lovejoys and i was trying to balance school and and like i i didn't i didn't do it right i wound up taking straight f's that last semester because i didn't understand that i needed to withdraw yeah so by the grace of god or the skin of my teeth or whatever divine deity is out there uh when i checked and and got my debts all paid down with uw and everything i'm still in good standing so when i transfer back here in a year change i'll be okay but that's that's not for for lack of trying to (laughs) trying to be on probation (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm still above a 2.0, so I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, looking back and, and, you know, I, I, I gotta say that, uh, you know, thank God for the people that I knew in that period of my life. And I'm including Laura in there, even though our split was pretty acrimonious and I haven't talked to her in over 10 years and stuff like that. Um, without her and without you and without Grisham and without, uh, Cameron, yeah, I probably would have been in much, much worse shape. And I don't know. I don't know how, how it would have turned out. So, you know, I look back on Lovejoy's 
I remember when I had quit school and mom came down with my stepdad and we had the, the chat as it goes sometimes. And she was really, really concerned about the choices I was making. And then about four months later, when I had gotten away from school and devoted myself to the restaurant and devoted myself to, to my time with Laura and whatnot, she said there was a big difference and that, uh, you know, she, I seemed content. Sure. Now, well, things change as life goes on, but yeah, uh, um, yeah I, I, I look back on that period of my life and go, that was, those were good times. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as many hours as I was willing to put into that restaurant, it, it paid off. And I still look at that and go, I don't think that there is going to be an opportunity. You know, there's very, very few opportunities when you get a group like Cameron, Sarah, Greg, myself, uh, you, Juan, you of these other people that I remember so fondly all at once in my life at the same time. So how'd you get the job at Lovejoy's? What made you seek out employment there? Um, I had done restauranting in high school at a little place called the Fireside and Fireside Inn and Cowboy Bar in Lusk, Wyoming. Worked summers for a gal named Jan Scott, who I really, really liked. And I enjoyed waiting tables. I still do. Um, and so I had gone to where you remember wingers oh, yeah. out there on the east side. That kind of rundown. It was Hoos. a sizzler before it was winger. Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I remember working there as line cook, and they still had some of the sizzler. Oh uh, yeah, serving trays. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, so I worked there for about two months, and I, I didn't like that one bit. It was, it was, it was rough. And so I put in an application. I had put in an application like two times before with Kara at Lovejoy's, and, and I also applied at Altitude. And finally, I caught Cameron one day and he just asked me, he had just been promoted to manager. He asked me like four questions as I turned in the application. And two days later, Kara called me and uh, Kara Hardy and okay. got me in for an interview. I showed up. Now, mind you, at the fraternity, there might have been some adult beverages involved. But the previous weekend, I had shaved my head. <laughs> I, not, not with a bick, but I buzzed it all off with a beard trim. And so I show up to the interview and I've got a buzzed haircut and I'm in a suit and she's probably going, what is with this dude? But I interviewed well and she offered me a position on the spot and I was so relieved. That was in the, uh, the, the fall of 2004, right about Thanksgiving. And I was so relieved uh, to be able to move on from wingers that I drove from Lovejoy's to wingers to give my notice. <laughs> it's 2004. So, I, 2004, I swear that that fall I became a DJ there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you hadn't been there very long when I, you were working one night and I was down there hanging out, uh, partying it up and I plopped down next to you and started talking music. And there we are 17 years later. That's how it happens. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I was going to apply to be a bouncer there. I moved back to Laramie in 2003. We'd spent so much time hanging at love joys and I was like, huh, how do I pay for my bar tabs? Get a job at the bar. I did that in college. And, uh, and so I get an application, I give it into Kara and she's like, you're not going to be a bouncer. And I was like, what? And she's like, you'll be our new DJ. And I was like, how do you know I was DJ? And she's like, oh yeah, when you were DJ at the parlor, I would be in there underage. So you're a new <laughs> DJ. And I was like, I was like, I've been three years out of it, like three and a half years, like more, maybe more. So I didn't really have like a collection of music. I mean, 
thank God for burden CDs. That became like all yeah. CDs. And everyone's like, you use CDs? And I was like, yeah, I didn't trust myself and everybody else with drinks and a computer in front yeah. of me. I was like, I'd rather screw up CDs. And I still have uh, the CDs. Um, they're in a storage thing right behind me. I mean, they're sticky. They're, oh, yeah, yeah it was, it's interesting. I open up every once in a while or if I am going to do it's, like it. We hang on to stuff like that because you, yeah. you were talking wrestling earlier. And I think I've still got a, a big old bag for my tape trading is how I got oh, it away yeah. and stuff like that. Because, you know, we on our cable system in Lust, we couldn't even get pay-per-view. And yeah. So, um, uh, that's how I got pay-per-views and stuff. And then I think I've still got a bag of VHS sitting around somewhere that, uh, that I just, you know, I, I don't really want to turn loose of them, even though I don't have any way to play them right now. <laughs> or I'll like, I look through them because I'll, if I do like a radio show where I'll do like a tribute to the Lovejoy years, I'll be like, mm-hmm. Oh, this burn CD is like, when, when, you know, the CD I would play and go hang out with Levon for a little while. And, uh, so, I mean, it, it, it was interesting to be uh, a definitely a bar DJ after, and at a full-time job after I'd been done with college, but yet I drank like I was in college again. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was a good, I, my first year working at Lovejoy's, I didn't hang out at Lovejoy's that often afterwards, after I, I just DJ and I'd do other things. And then it took me going to the Buckhorn and back working there to really hang out Lovejoy's with the crew and the, and the people there and everything and, and and really enjoy like oh I'll go down there on a Wednesday or Monday it didn't matter I was yeah. going to know somebody when I walked in the place or lots of somebody's and so but yet it was like where I'd originally was where, uh, living with Will Ledoux it was like the furthest bar I could work at like I was like oh god so far and and then uh uh, got a DUI and was like, well, I'll move closer. Not maybe I should just control my drinking. I'll move closer so I can walk it out. And, and that became the way for a long time. And then, and that kind of thing, I mean, when Lovejoy has decided to go without a DJ, um, I was moving to the houseman now and I bought it for my parents eventually. And uh, it's That's cool. no, They're on the base gable, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I went out there to watch WrestleMania with that. Yeah, there's nowhere near, there's no bars near. Uh, at the time I started living here, uh, no ride shares by any means. And so it was like, do I want to go out tonight and try to figure out rides and all that stuff? Or I can just sit home and not do this. And it sobered me up tremendously and and got my tolerance to a you know reasonable drinking level if I decide to drink at all. And, and so I used to like poke fun of those people that would leave like love joys of the bar business and they'd get all, you know, did normal drinking levels and come back and they lost weight and they're healthy. And I'd be like, and then they get drunk real quick. And I'm like, you can't hang. And they're like, you, you'll know. And yes, I do know now how it changed. And I knew I didn't want to, I know there's lots of people that go to the bar every night and that's their thing. I just knew it wasn't going to be mine. Right. and and didn't want it to be that way and and you know still have lots of great friends from that, that era but knew for my own health it's not good to yeah. drink like that and everything and just physically mentally all that stuff because yeah i mean mental health it's definitely a hot top today and 
lot we got to address it um because i went through yeah major anxiety after they got rid of the outreach school and uh because i felt they pulled the rug out from underneath me and i was like what's going on i had a job and everything but it just felt like a shaky ground and it snaps up my head and next thing i know i'm talking myself yeah mental talk out of just good times and things i would normally do and it wasn't a whole lot of out loud anxiety it was in my head a lot a lot of battles were fought in my head and i tried all sorts of ways to combat it and eventually talking to a doctor my doctor that does all my deep diabetes stuff and everything like that i'm like so what's going on am i the right you're the right guy to talk to and he's like oh yeah we'll put you on some medicine this is kind of normal i mean they say with diabetics it can happen um mm-hmm. you don't have as much serotonin and so i was like all right it's been about a year now it's the best decision i've made in a long time it's my second favorite like drugs to do besides my diabetes medicine like it is like <laughs> and i can tell like i've been off it the longest it was like two days like it was in between refills and i could feel those yeah. wheels turning and i'm like oh yeah and so I preach it to the mountaintops, like to anybody like, well, anxiety is kind of normal. I was like, that kind of anxiety was not normal. You need to get some help. And, and at least I would, once I got that break from it, I was like, this is where it has to be. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I'm like anyone that's listening. Yeah. If you're experiencing high anxiety, if you're experiencing, you probably know the symptoms better for being bipolar. Um, yeah, talk to if in doubt, go go talk to someone. Yeah. And ain't no shame in it. And, and let me tell you, functionality, you know, being able to rebuild whatever you're trying to rebuild in your life is, yeah. is absolutely. I mean, I, I look back on um the drinking and I look back on the bipolar episodes even when I was not drinking. Yeah. And go just the dysfunction in my life. So much of that could have been prevented. So many relationships could have uh ended on better terms all of these things all of these consequences could have been different and, and far more positive so you know you don't have to go as far down as i did like yeah me too you don't have i mean i didn't have a lot of outward anxiety but it, it was definitely inward and and i'm i think i might have gotten another buddy of mine to go talk to somebody now he is taking the same medicine that i am taking i was like right on and he's not having he would be like i'll be in an elevator and i'd be freaking out right and i'd be like why he's like i just don't have control of it and i'm like it's okay man like he might want to talk to somebody about that and i was like yeah it's not it's you'll if you have those kind of thoughts that's not normal because people ride in elevators just normally all the time and don't think about the control factor of it and all that and he's like sitting in traffic and i'm surrounded i'm like yes that anxiety there. Yeah, that sucks, but you shouldn't be like near panic phase because you're sitting in traffic in Las Vegas. That happens, you know, and, and, and I, it's a lot of stuff I went through like, Oh, I'll go down to Denver. I used to go down to Denver, go to concerts all the time. And then suddenly I'm like, Oh, traffic, this is going to happen. This could happen. This could happen. It's all in my head. Yeah. I think yeah. I've disqualified myself from life just because yeah. I've been- I, I didn't feel confident enough to deal with it because I didn't know how I was going to react. You know? Yeah. And all of a sudden I'd be down for no reason. Or I'd be, uh, at one time I was misdiagnosed with a major depressive disorder. So they were putting me on 
antidepressants, uh, uh, SSRIs, which exacerbates mania. Yeah. So go clear up for a long time and get all this stuff done. I'd be working out six days a week and, and, and operating on five hours of sleep and doing all these things. Wow. And then I crash and, and that would be no good. And, you know, without going into gory details, let's just say it was very destructive. And, and now it's just like, you know, I can go at a proper pace towards things like going back to school and I've got concert tickets, you know, I'm sure we'll get to talking some music here and stuff, but uh, you know, things like that, all of these cool things are happening in life um, because I'm not jumping up and down between extremes. I'm, I'm evened out where I need to be. Yeah. It's not as exhausting. Holy. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's the huge thing right there. There, there's some moments things. Cause like, I would turn to like cleaning and organizing and I would do it out of, this is something I can control. This is mm-hmm. something I can control. And now I don't have that feeling where I'm like, not like I'm on my house, get out of disorder, but I'm like, eh, I can let it go a day. Like I can let it, you know, I can let things go. You know, it's, it's interesting how peace of mind um, helps out tremendously these days. I mean, you know, the world's, awesome crazy place and good times and bad times but it's good to be able to approach it with some normal thinking as i like to call it or some just right what got you there not this whole mess of weird thoughts or i can't imagine being i've i've had a few friends that i've seen in the manic side of bipolarism and um it's insane sometimes and mm-hmm. i'm like you're gonna crash like this is and like you said, it's not necessarily a good thing when it happens. Right. You know, like you just don't go to sleep. You can do a lot more destruction besides yeah. crashing down and such. And so uh, got through Love Joys. Um, and then, so did you stop school for a little bit? You're all about the bar, the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And then. Well, I was all about the bar too. <laughs> it's, a bar. it's a bar and restaurant. And then, I mean, how long? We just spent three years there. Um, uh, it was uh, it started out healthy and then probably wasn't. Um, you know, one of the, the ways that I was uh, medicating the bipolar was probably through some some excessive alcohol use. Yeah, and probably overworking uh, because I I tend to do that too. That's something I've got to watch now. Um, in fact, I turned down some overtime today just because of the fact that for my mental health, I, 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 I have to force myself to make sure I've got days off. There you uh, go. So uh, that, I mean, it started taking a toll on other relationships, uh, family, it took, definitely took a toll on Laura and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, there was four of us on the management team at that time, and all of us were pretty tight, but uh, one was going to law school and the rest of us were not. And so divergent goals, I'm not saying anyone's were better or worse, mm. just different. And at that time I knew I wanted to go back to school, but it was, it was because of the mental health side of things. It was, it was just this tall order. Wow. And of course at that time I didn't, I didn't have any idea how much I torpedoed my, my college career or not. I figured I probably had which I mean, I'm not going to lie a couple of years ago when I sorted that out, that was a huge, really, really <laughs> pleasant surprise. Um, so it was, it was, I felt kind of aimless and kind of lost. And then uh, just overworking, 
not taking care of myself and whatnot, something had to change. Um, and eventually I, I left Lovejoy's um, in rather dramatic fashion. I don't want to go into that particular uh-huh. episode. Um, but uh, uh, by, by the time it was all said and done, the friendships remained. So oh, yeah. that was important. And uh, that was, you know, about the time you offered me a part-time position there at the university. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Outreach school. Yeah. That was good. You, did you operate? Did I start you off as tech first? You started me out as a tech uh, for one semester uh, just because you didn't have a bridge operator position open. Um, and you said, hey, if you want to stick around, um, I'd definitely get you in and get you more hours because I wasn't a student. So yeah. I, was not, uh, I was not beholden to 20 hours a week. I could work up to 39. And that gave you a lot of flexibility. Dan, Dan, you were a good backup when needed, even though there was a full timer that should have been my true backup, but I will not get into that one too much. And, and, but yeah, uh, because I, we started the network and everything that as my job, I got, I went from assistant previous director to um, manager video conferencing and it was building the network. We're like, okay, we got the infrastructure. Now, Justin, you figure out the rest. And I went, we have 59 sites. It was just, it was, I went who, and it was just like, I remember one time I was, I mean, working a lot, a lot. And because Tony just wanted to make sure I knew it. And eventually I, I and led to a DUI because I was out getting hammered on a Tuesday night because my job was just burning me out. And that was the only time I go out and drink at the time. And so um, eventually it was like, oh, you can hire people. You can hire more. Job. And I was like, yes. And, and it just made life easier to not be the end all be all of information. I was still on call and everything, but it was great to have help and bring in people. And uh, yeah, it was, it was good times working at the outreach school. Um, I wish it was still there. They got done dirty and uh, <laughs> put me in to IT. I mean, I'm glad to have a job, but it's not where I thought my broadcasting career i was barely holding on broadcasting stuff working in video conferencing and now i apply some of my former broadcasting skills to to the job as far as like camera setup and lighting and audio and stuff it's stuff i knew but now i know like like the certification sides of it so it's uh i'm i'm learning all the time it feels like at the job and so you work at outreach for a little while and then I don't even know what, I don't even, I don't even remember how you left or where you went. <laughs> well, so I spent three years with you at outreach. Years, and, yeah. Um, I mean, and I, I, you, we were talking earlier about how education was kind of, you know, is our bag. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm headed a different direction now. I'm, I'm going into social work. Uh, is the plan, but uh, I really liked that job because the nothing against the restaurant industry or anything, but ultimately you're pretty much working for someone's bottom line, oh, and yeah. that's all the higher, greater good you're going to get out of it. Yeah, and that doesn't make it bad. It just it just means it's it's not an altruistic thing. I have a real service oriented side to me, and so working as a small cog in a very large organization to allow people to empower themselves to do good things in their lives was really, really satisfying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was um, working with, uh, with uh, 
Jim and Jay and, and, you know, even Tony, when he'd come in and I, I remember you and I sometimes looking at each other as they would have impromptu meetings in your office there. And <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> all of these yeah. weird things that would happen, but, you know, also, uh, there was a lot of satisfaction that, that uh, Jay, he knew that if I was calling at night uh, with with a problem, I had gone down this checklist of things that I had tried already. So we could really dig into a problem and stuff like that. Those guys, they liked me. I liked them. We were all worked well together. It was a really good three years. Um, uh, however, me being a uh, employee that had to be rehired all the time uh, every year um, made it difficult. And then there was the fact that uh, when the classes stopped, I mean, you, you try and generate as many hours of taping for me as you could, but there just wasn't that much to go around. Yeah, so I had an opportunity to go work with the experience that you gave me through working with UWTV, uh, doing the tapings and stuff, you know, learning things like time code, and insert editing, and, and just these small little things. I put in with uh, what is now T3 Media over in the Business Development Center and uh went over as a video uh, as a video fulfillment specialist with them uh that that was my first taste of working corporate <laughs> it wasn't bad yeah um, it just it was very much the salespeople didn't understand that there was a lot of limitations to what we could do to fulfill the assets all but right. I got to I got to do a lot of cool things. One of the, one of the first projects that uh, I saw the guys working on was the relaunch of at that time a relaunch of Discovery Network's website. Wow. So getting all the video assets put together and everything like that. But uh, there was not the same level of satisfaction, and and I had a pretty hefty depressive episode and, and made the decision to leave Laramie at that time. And then where'd you go? I went back to Lusk for a while. Okay. And um, since then, so that would have been 2011. Um, since then, let's see what all has happened. I uh, spent some time in Lusk, went back to restauranting, worked as a line cook slash server at a place that is no longer open uh, for a gal that was really, really supportive of my mental health and, and substance abuse issues. Uh, even when I was being a pinhead, she, she always made sure I had a place to work. And, uh, you know, so I appreciate her for that. Um, eventually wound up in Casper and I've been in and out of Casper. Um, let's see, 2013 is when I elected to join the Navy. Yeah. So that was kind of a spur of the moment. I've been kind of rebuilding life since I'd gotten back to Lusk in 11. Uh, I've moved to, uh, I'd gone to substance abuse treatment in 2012, didn't really know what I was going to do. And so I was going to go to Casper and get a job. And, you know, definitely not like Austin, who usually has a pretty set plan, <laughs> concrete yeah. steps. That was pretty vague and pretty open-ended. And it was pretty clear that if I look back now, I can tell that my mental health was not where it needed to be. Um, had a relapse and, and didn't know what to do. And so I got some more help. And then it was just like, you know what? I don't through through all of my pinheadedness and poor decisions i don't have a criminal record and i don't have anything stopping me from revisiting that military thing yeah. and then all of a sudden i had that that feeling of purpose and that feeling of direction that i hadn't had for a while and so i wouldn't talk to the recruiter and you know normally delayed entry takes you know months 
Um, for me, it was, I was to Denver within a week and then I was, my delayed entry was only three weeks. Whoa. So yeah, I was, I was to boot camp in about a month. Wow. So, um, I had, uh, volunteered for the subcorp, and then they rated me an ET. So I was going to be an electronics technician on the submarine. Um, Really, my, my hope was to, in that first enlistment, because with submarine, typically you're going to have a five-year enlistment because your A school is going to, your technical school is going to be a year. So they want to get four years of service out of you after they train you up. Okay. Uh, I was fine with that. What I wanted to do was go ahead and get my debts paid down with UW and get my transcript freed up and then finish my degree. And then I was going to apply to officer candidate school. Um, I was looking to go career and looking to go officer. Um, at boot camp, I got to Red Rover, which is their medical testing facility, and they took a look at my eyes, and we knew that my vision was bad, that I had really bad astigmatism, but we didn't know how bad, and now it would be detected at MEPS uh, upon entry, and I never would have got it at boot camp, but at that time, they didn't have the technology at every MEPS station, and we found out I've got what's called keratoconus, which is when your cornea is shaped more like a football than a basketball, and it causes okay. refractory issues. And it's typically a DQ because it wasn't discovered until I got to boot camp. I was able to fight to stay in and try and get a local waiver. But unfortunately, that local waiver was overturned. Um, so the military sent me home after uh, 80, 84 days. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Uh, kind of a bummer of a deal. I, uh, during all that, it sounded like I was going to be going back to, uh, training. Um, and so I, you know, here I am in the separation compartment trying to keep my military bearing and keep my boots shine up and make sure my uniform's on point and all of these things. And, and the, the difficulty in the separation compartment is a lot of these guys, they, they got to the Navy and realized they're actually joining the military. They didn't really want oh, to, yeah. the military. Just, you know, so they do something stupid, like they got high night before they shipped and you know in the military essentially you turn around from one piss test and they're pretty much giving you another one uh, okay um, uh at least until you're in and really committed uh, yeah. to old environment uh or honestly until you complete boot camp you can pretty much at any point say i don't want to be in the navy and they'll let you out because at that point they're out uh a little bit of food you give the uniform and the boots back yeah. So they're out some underwear and a few meals. And, you know, I personally, I agree with that policy because I don't want to be in a crisis situation with someone who doesn't want to be there. That makes I sense. want people that motivated and, and, and ready to rock and roll and do what's necessary. So surrounded by all these people that don't want to be in the military and are just waiting to go home. And so they're sloughing around and I'm trying to maintain the right attitude and all of these things. And it was, it was really disheartening when I got the news that uh, my plane ticket would be given me here in seven days. And I was flying into Scotts Bluff, Nebraska of all places, because technically it's closer than Casper. And, uh, uh, yeah. and uh, so I, I took that pretty hard, but you know, after 10 years or nine years now, uh, dealing with it, I've, I've come to peace with it that I, I did show up and raise my right hand. And if I had my choice, I'd be out in the fleet right now. So, uh, and I'm, I'm yet to meet a veteran that hears my story and, and says, well, you're not a veteran because it's, it's not like it was a self-directed career move to leave the Navy. Yeah. I mean, 
I think you when you I first you told me about that whole thing, I was like, damn, you wanted to be there. You know, you really like and you were so adamant. You like, so I felt like my heart was broken for you. And I was like, God, just to get shut down and big goal, like wanted to be there, ready to do it all. And you know, that you get disqualified on an eye thing. I mean, not in mental health, not anything. I I mean, like you were solid, you were driven, you were ready to be in the military and you knew what you wanted to do. I mean, you had plans, I mean, sub and then officer corps, that stuff. I mean, nobody really, not many people plan out like that right off the bat. And so, um, yeah, I was disappointed for you and I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure it was a big mental health hit. Did, did you go back to Casper or did you go back to Lusk after that? I went back to Lusk initially, um, wound up working for Department of Corrections out at the Women's Center for uh, a little bit. That was a tough job because oh, yeah. uh, uh, I, I was not in uniform. I was working in culinary, um, but everything within the correctional facility is geared towards operational security. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're constantly observing and, and anything out of the ordinary you got to notice everything's got to be routine 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 and you've got to be on point all the time and uh, it's exhausting and again my mental health is not diagnosed at this time so i don't know really what's going on with me and uh, yeah eventually it, it it took a dive and i relapsed and wound up going back to casper to get more help and and so uh i I'm sure at this point, if I wanted to reapply for Department of Corrections when I got into social work, that'd be a possibility. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, you know, I'd be better prepared and, and better equipped to handle it um, because I do feel like the, the correctional department, uh, when you're dealing with mental health and addiction situations, that is possibly the most underrepresented population in the United States. That makes uh, sense. Yeah, uh, we can't expect them to get better if we're not giving them opportunities while right. they're in the facilities. You know, and ideally we want to prepare them to not come back into the facility. So that may be a direction I go as I pursue social work. Okay. Talked about a few times social work. Why social work? That's that it's that service-minded thing. Okay. Uh, first trip through college, I, I started out studying political science. Um, I had now, it's, it's important to note that 20, 25 years ago, when I first started getting into politics in high school and middle school, the political landscape was very, very different. Uh, oh. For anyone listening that's a little younger, <laughs> there was civil discourse in those days. Um, it, I, I, in fact, when, uh, when Bob Dole passed away here the other day, uh, what was that, two, three months ago, I saw, uh, oh, oh, trying to remember. Guy from South Dakota. Anyway, uh, right. he was Senate Majority Leader. Anyway, so two two big wigs from when I was much younger talking on an interview on, on one of the news channels about Bob Dole, and they were discussing how in those days that it was not as partisan as it is now. It was partisan, but there was still cooperation. There was still an ideal of, of country before self. And I don't want to I don't want to get out of soapbox and politicize here, but I think yeah. that's one of the things that socially is different in the last two generations is that um, prior to my growing up, two generations have been faced with existential cons uh, crises, whether it was the Cold War or World War II, that made a person think of country before self. 
And that, I mean, that's the unofficial Navy motto that I've taken with me is, is mm. service itself. And so it, it, it really, at that time, it was going into college to go into politics, to go into public service because I could serve. As I was an ASUW Senator, that's something I didn't talk about when I was there. I did spend, spend uh, some time as an ASUW oh. Senator. And I came to find out that the partisanship, now part of that, I think, it, at the college level is because it's a bunch of 18 to 20 year olds thinking that they're community leaders, mm. uh, which, okay, yeah, we are, but I think it inflated our egos probably a little too much. Um, but it was partisan. And at that time, it was very much Greeks versus non-Greeks. Uh, and that really tied up what we were able to do in the Senate. And it was not it was not good because I I didn't care one way or the other. But because I was a pledge at Sigma Alpha Epsilon at the time, I got lumped in with the Greeks. Yep. And, it, and and so I didn't think that was fair. And it kind of soured me on the whole political system as it stands. And over 20 years, I've just watched things get worse and mm-hmm. less cooperative and less. And I'm not saying one side is right or wrong. I've got my leanings. Anyone wants to look me up on Facebook and send me a message, we can chat about it. What I am going to say is that right now, uh, I would recommend anyone looking to go into political science better be planning on going into constitutional law because it's going to be real lucrative real soon. <laughs> um, anyway, the idea was that I was going to go serve. And I was going to do, you know, this is this is the micro versus the macro. At that time, I was looking at doing things in the macro. I was going to do a lot of good for a lot of people. Well, the reality is, at least in my opinion, that that system doesn't work right now. And so for me, being able to enact empowerment at the micro level on the individual level, that's that's probably a better attempt because sure, um, looking at my because of my story with substance abuse and with mental health, I'm looking to go into substance abuse and mental health. I, I'm, that's, there is, there's a lot of recidivism and there is a lot, I mean, I, I've been a chronic relapser myself. I've been through it. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not one of those functional alcoholics. I'm, I'm the fall down, doesn't show up for work alcohol. Um, so I understand where those people are coming from. But the other side of that is, is that if you get someone that comes out on the other side, then that's a success story. And, and, you know, my best friend out in Pennsylvania, who I'm sure will listen to this podcast, she's recovering. She's got 10 years. Um, uh, I know some great people in Casper that, uh, that are recovering. I know some people in Laramie that are in recovery Um, down in Colorado. I met some some amazing people. One of the best meetings I ever went to of, of Alcoholics Anonymous was right downtown, and and it was you know it was homeless people right next to business executives and, and things like that. And so it, it's this opportunity to go out there and and uh, have a an impact on people's lives that isn't just about me and and mine. Gotcha. I sat in uh, a lot of social work classes as a a video conferencing tech mm-hmm. and uh i dated a social worker for a little bit that got her master's edub and i we're i asked her like at her first job like she got and she had a master's degree and i i still think she's smarter than me and i was like i make more money than you and i'm just about like connecting video stuff like this is sad because social work is so important and sitting in those classes i was just like oh my god I can't believe the work that's being done. I mean, I guess it's one of those, you get more out of what you do than you get on your paycheck. 
and like sure. teachers and stuff like that. It's a thankless job. And, and, but yet very, very, very needed in the world. There's not enough of them out there as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I, and, there, and there's a horrible shortage of them right now. Yeah. Too. And, you know, and I'm kind of glad that, you know, you posed the question the way you did, because, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, not everyone, and I, and I, it's totally up to an individual how they want to talk about their their journey through mental health and potential yeah. substance whatnot. I'm more than happy to be open about it because I want people to hear it. And you've known me a few years. Subtle is not anything that I've ever discussed. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, um, I think that it's it's important that you know uh, that people recognize that those situations exist and and that there are those of us that are that are trying to step into it and and do something about it and and it's it's such a it's such a malleable type situation because of the fact that each individual is different and their their needs are different like i i've been told by therapists that i'm a tough crack because i am so intellectual yeah and something I've, i've had to work on is being more in touch with my feelings and different things like that but one of the cool things is, you know, like I say, when you show people that are coming out on the other side of it, not, you know, I'm only coming up about six months sober right now, but uh, since my last relapse, nice. I, I had to spend some time in Wyoming Behavioral Institute to get straightened out. And, I, you know, I, I've got a hell of a story for anyone who wants to hear the gory details. But the cool thing is, is like I say, we got college happening. We got some concerts happening. Uh, you know, all of these, these awesome things that happen when you do what I call that next right thing for a few days in a row, all of a sudden things come together, but it takes a willingness to, I, I'm going to say it very frankly, uh, it takes enough pain for me to be willing to go through a lesser pain of, of getting healthy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, I, you know, sounds like that's kind of where you were at with your anxiety is it just, it got to be too much. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. And like, magnesium was like a self like home care thing and it would give me some relief and i would always be like but i need more so i got to go get the real stuff and talk and and it worked out better but i was just like i needed that slight window to know that this isn't normal like Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't normal this is not how i've lived 20 30 some years of my life or for 40 some years and i was like wow this is not normal and so I feel for the people that can't get that just day or week break from it to realize it needs to be seriously addressed. You don't have to live this way, this, this life, like your mental health, this isn't the normal. You can, you can get help and such. And there's people that, I mean, whether we come from talking, going to groups, taking medication, um, there's people out there that, that want to help and they can help you. And that it's just getting that first just day of clarity to go, okay, I can't do this by myself. This head's not figuring it out. It's not, it's, you're going to die of a heart attack if you overstress this stuff anymore and, and stuff like that or make stupid decisions or not make any decisions and miss out on the world. In my case, like miss out on the world. And so I'm glad I didn't have to, like, it's a perfect um, dosage of it. I haven't had to bring it up or down and, and I like, I understand when you were like, I got to go take this pill. And I was like, I get it. I take mine in the morning. And if I don't, I, things could get sideways a little bit. 
Um, I know you brought up music. We might have to talk about it on another podcast because we've right. gone long on this one. And I always ask this question of everybody, and we've kind of touched on it, but I have a particular story in mind. Um, since the show's called All My Friends with Justin Flaskrude, how'd we meet? As I, as I recall, you were working at Lovejoy's as a DJ. Yeah. Uh, been on for a few months. And uh, I went over and uh, sat down because you had that extra chair next to you all the time. Yeah. And of course, you know, we weren't having a quiet conversation because that PA was not. <laughs> yeah. No. But we got to talk and music. And, and I think I just asked you, you know, who you dug. And so we listed off a few bands and we chatted for a, long, a few minutes. And, I, you know, I didn't I didn't overstay my welcome and try to become your best friend right away. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then. Not long after that, I was saying you needed a tip jar, and yeah. you got that. Yeah. And uh, then when you started hanging out uh, at Lovejoy's, just as a as part of the the crew. Yeah. That's when the friendship really developed. I found out you were a wrestling fan, and when I, Jimbo was involved in that too, because he showed up one night when I was working the door carrying his replica title belt, and that's when I met Jimbo because I was just yeah. like, okay, I got to talk to this cat. And uh, got to know him that way. And, uh, you know, I don't know him well, but I know him well enough to, to yeah. remember that story. And, uh, you know, so it just, Lovejoy's was where it started. And then, you know, it developed uh, through watching some wrestling and then working together. And we've kept in touch all these years. I think a couple of times at football games, I've gone and looked you up while you were tailgating and whatnot. Right. I haven't made any football games, but that's hopefully going to change this year. So. I remember one particular, and this is where I think, I, I, I mean, yeah, I probably sat down in the DJ booth and we hung out, we talked music and stuff, but there was one particular moment, I swear we solidified as friends, and it was Halloween. I come in as Triple H and you're Nikki Six, which I'm a <laughs> huge crew fan. And it, it was like, we just came, we're like, yes, like came right up to each other, like, yes, I like what you're doing right there. Like, this is cool. And I remember that moment. I was like, we're going to be friends. We're going to be friends. Was that, was that when I had the cod piece when I was hosting? I can't remember exactly. I just I remember the wig and everything, the, the eye and all, all that stuff. And I'd grown out, like, I normally just have the, the chin goatee thing. It was the adverse, what Triple H has. And I'd grown out the full beard to get it going. I did it full costume. And like I, any girl I was talking to at the time was like, I hate your beer. And I was like, it's going to work out. It's going to work out for this costume. Trust me. It's going to work out. And uh, I even got like legit. I, I think I was roommates with um, athletic. Uh, they worked on the training. They were trainers. And so they taped up my hands. Nice. Like yeah, I, I showed him a picture of triple H and I said, do that to my hands. And but I remember that moment. I was like, yes, because I'm a big Molly Crew fan. And I was like, I'm, I've got tickets to the stadium tour. Oh, nice. Nice. I debated it when they were before it got canceled the first time around. Um, yeah. But I'm like, I watched that live Molly Crew, their very last show. Wink, wink, because now we got more. Um, and I was like, ugh, that was rough for me. And because I saw them at like 2005 or something. Um, they were at Budweiser Center and it was like the perfect crew concert I could have chose. They weren't quite super old and Vince could still sing and 
and Mick could stand. He just got off the broken hip. Like things were good. And now they just look like just roughed up rock stars. <laughs> like, and I mean, it'd be awesome if Vince came out and could sing like, you know, first couple albums, but it wasn't feeling good at that last show. I watched them, them play, but who's else is with them? Poison and Def Leppard and Joan Def Jett. Joan Jett. Yeah, I've seen everybody Joan Jett on that one. Um, saw Poison concert. They had a uh, keyboardist in playing with them. I was like, what? CC can't hold his own? Why is this guy <laughs> in the band? And then uh, that Cinderella was before them. They blew the doors off the place. So I was there to see Poison, but walked away a huge Cinderella fan. Nice. And uh, Def Leppard's a great show. Like I've seen cool. them a couple times. So it'll be good. They'll they'll definitely. Um, I think you'll get you'll like Def Leppard most because they're still pretty big showmans and and everything. If you like their music, yeah, they'll give you the best. But yeah, yeah, and getting to see Molly Crew if you haven't had to see him yet is is a good time. Yeah. Well, man, I want to thank you for being on the show. Yeah, no worries, man. Time. It's uh, it cracks me up that the day you asked me was the day that uh, picture of us doing Sean and trips at the bar was uh, in my memory. So it's just like, yep, yep, this seems about right. So cool. I want to thank. Austin for being on the show. I did watch AEW after our interview. And yes, that 10 man tag match was pretty good. I'm an Adam Cole fan. So I always like it when he kicks some ass and is kind of the featured wrestler in any sort of match. Uh, and the Sammy uh, miss from the ladder was pretty intense, kind of scary. So I don't want to give you spoilers away, but make sure you check out AEW from this week. Uh, it may be too late by the time you listen to this podcast. I also want to thank Austin for sharing his struggles with bipolarism throughout his life. You know, he may not have recognized it earlier in his life, but he has now. And he's, you know, taking medication and getting help for it. It's not easy to talk about your own mental health. But as you can tell from the interview, we both highly encourage you to talk to someone, your healthcare provider maybe a therapist, if you're going through depression or have anxiety like I do. It has been sweet relief since I started taking anxiety medicine. It's just great. So talk to your healthcare provider. On to the next episode. All my friends, all my friends, all my friends with Justin Plaskerud. All my friends, all my friends, all my friends with Justin Plaskerud.